Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets what? Deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your trusty host, Scott Goldfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. And then have your copy. Get on over Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe. Subscribe at YouTube to the Funkin' Stuff channel. That's where truth and rhythm resides. We love that support. Keep the subscriptions rolling in. Tell family, tell friends. This episode features one of the funkiest, most soulful, sassy, sexy, sultry, and straight-out badass female singers of the post-1980s era. I'm speaking of the sensational Jennifer Durkin. While I do not generally get caught up on racial matters, I would be remiss not to express that Jen Durkin is quite possibly the most authentic-sounding white female funk and soul vocalist since the late, great Tina Marie. Best known for her recording extensive touring with one of the principal bands that kept funk alive in the 1990s, Deep Banana Blackout, Durkin has also led and been featured in several other groups. And she has shared the stage and performed with some of the most celebrated funk and rock musicians, including touring with Bernie Worrell and playing with Fred Wesley, Clyde Stubblefield, George Porter Jr., as well as other P-Funk and Grateful Dead alumni. Drawing on influences like Funkadelic, Tower of Power, The Meters, Led Zeppelin, and more, Deep Banana Blackout emerged in 1995 and went on to release four albums, one studio record, and three live sets. They featured primarily original compositions, with the final one coming in 2002. Where they really made an impact was on the road. That's where they developed a faithful nationwide following. As far as what was released, nothing hit harder than DBB's 1998 live double CD, Rowdy Duty. That fantastic set's catchy, sing-songy bump and sway, swinging and seductive breakfast at Volos, James Brown-inspired get y'all in the mood, rhythmically rocking take the time, P-Funk Tip of the Hat, Pure Gravy, and Headhunters cover, God Made Me Funky, were among the decade's prime funk highlights. In this in-depth interview, the charming and humble Durkin reveals her remarkable 25-year career, replete with thrills, spills, chills, and daffodils. In addition to getting deep with Deep Banana Blackout, she reminisces about her wondrous time with keyboard legend Worrell, the ups and downs of dealing with deadheads, coping with the rigors of the road and the music industry in general, her weakness for drummers, winning an American Music Award, and continuing to plug away with multiple projects today. My first exposure to Jen Durkin was seeing her front Deep Banana Blackout as an opening act for Government Mule in the mid-1990s at Hollywood's House of Blues. I was floored. and They remain perhaps the hottest band I had not heard of before seeing them. So then, let's get down to it with a very special vocalist who has more chops than a karate master. Hey, welcome once again to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, where I'm delighted to be able to bring to you a young lady whose fiery and powerful singing elevated every project she's ever been a part of to high soaring and supremely soulful heights. I'm referring to Jennifer Pipes Durkin, who achieved her greatest notoriety as lead singer of the jam in 1990s funk band Deep Banana Blackout, and subsequently performed with several other groups as well as legendary musicians like P-Funk's 
Bernie Worrell. Jen, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Where are you coming to us from today? Uh, I live in Connecticut, uh, right uh, near the Bridgeport line uh, in a neighborhood called Black Rock. Very cool. So um, I had told you, uh, you know, offline, big fan, been following uh, Deep Banana Blackout ever since probably about the time you guys got going because I saw you initially open up for a government mule at the House of Blues in um, California when I was still living out there before I relocated to Charlotte where I am now. And um, I was like, who are these guys? You know, and you just really uh, kind of blew me away because it's not often being a fan that I am of the genre um, that I encounter a group I had not heard of before that really kind of blows my doors off. Well, we came along at a time when, you know, nobody was really doing what, what we wanted to do, uh, which was, you know, we had a, a brass section, we had a, a Hammond B3 organ, uh, you know, we were an eight piece band and in most places we played couldn't almost even fit all of us, <laughs> you know, on the stage. Uh, it was really that, you know, um, started with the fact that we all were when, you know, we were like college age and, you know, closely thereafter around the Hartford and between Hartford and New York City shows, um, I think we probably hit every single P-Funk show um, that was happening in the, from uh, about 92 to, you know, when we finally opened for them in uh, 98, which was, was, you know, really not even by design. It was just like, you know, we we had such a a great um, crowd following uh, that, you know, we were able to, you know, open up for for uh, George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars at the Bayou Blues Festival, which happened this incredible venue, uh, Croton on the Hudson, right on the Hudson River and a beautiful day. And, you know, we were uh, going on before them and to see them sort of like, you know, clip pain, like filtering in through the crowd. And I could see them from the stage, you know, they're out, they're out in the audience, like watching us. And, you know, after the fact that, you know, me and the guys in my band in Deep and Out and Blackout, you know, we had been to countless, you know, probably hundreds of shows together. Um, it was it was electricity like I can't even describe, um, you know, just to uh, I mean, we were at that time doing all original music when, when we opened up for them. So we had really come up, though, playing a lot of Sly Stone, James Brown and P-Funk in our repertoire. And then like every third or fourth song, we would put one of our own songs in there. And so we kind of um, almost acted a little bit like I tried to, at least on the mic, uh, tell people who we were covering. And we actually brought, I think, a lot of fans that didn't know about that style of music because a lot of those people in the 90s, you know, they they were not hip to, to James Brown and Funkadelic and and we and especially from this part of the you know country that we're in in Connecticut, you know, it really really enlightened a lot of people to that uh, you know genesis of music that really started with the with those three bands that we were covering. Well, all right. <laughs> We kind of jumped ahead a little bit. That's cool. And I, you know, I, I remember that era so well. I remember every era of, of P Funk since the 70s, but um, I have fond memories of that period too in the uh, early 90s. Um, but Jennifer, how did you first, you know, get in a singing period? 
and uh, you know, who are some of your, um, you know, mentors and idols and things like that? Well, I always wanted to sing. And, you know, when I was a little kid, I was singing opera in the playpen because my, uh, my, my Italian grandfather and my mother uh, were just huge opera fans, took us to the Met, saw a lot of opera. And from the time I was very little, I was always trying to imitate the opera. I think that's how I got a big sound. And then as I got older, you know, I really um, was feeling the blues, feeling Led Zeppelin and you know, Janis Joplin. And my first uh, opportunity to sing with a rock band uh, came when I was about 14 years old. I was on the school bus and I had a Sony Walkman cassette player and I had my headphones on and, and I was singing along to whatever I was listening to. And all of a sudden I looked up and there were these two guys that were in the seat in front of me that were facing me and just like, like staring at me. Like they couldn't believe what they were hearing. And they were like, you know, we we're guitar players. We have a band. And if you just stay on the bus, one more stop, you can come come over our house and, and try some songs with us. Do you know you know any of this any of this Zeppelin? Do you know the Who? Do you know and they're you know rattling off all this classic rock stuff that they were doing? And I was like, yeah, oh yeah, 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 that sounds cool. So that was my first introduction to playing electric music, and it was you know rock and blues, and and uh, we played you know at the school jams, and people were you know pretty basically freaked out because I don't sound like what I look like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's because of my influences, which you, you know, I have to say, I really had mostly male singers um, were my influence um, until I heard Aretha Franklin. And I kind of was a little bit late to the party with Aretha. I didn't discover her until I was in uh, uh, my sophomore year of college. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, went to the library and borrowed a Never Loved a Man uh, album and I didn't give it back. <laughs> I ended up having to pay for it because I, I had to keep it, you know. And uh, that really be began my uh, love for uh, gospel music. And I really enjoyed when I went to my second college after I, I didn't do so well, you know, in liberal arts college. I was bored. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be there partied too much and I didn't really know what I want I knew I wanted to be a singer but you know everybody uh kind of uh, said to me well you know that's kind of a pipe dream <laughs> and uh you should really go to you know, liberal arts college and you know get a degree so you can be a teacher so I thought that was a good plan but I didn't like it and uh I didn't enjoy it and I ended up getting in a lot of trouble and having a lot of bad experiences in college and then from, uh, I took a year off and worked in musical theater which was great my family you know are uh, primarily dancers um, in musical theater. My my aunt and uncle uh, gave me a lot of opportunities to be in musical theater productions in which I got singing parts. So that was my first professional singing experience. But I didn't really fall in love with the idea of actually being a singer until I heard Aretha Franklin. So I have to give her number one props, you know. Um, and oh, and Patti LaBelle as well. Um, I just love that style of singing. And so when I went to Berkeley uh, up in Boston, uh, the first thing I did was audition for the gospel choir. And everybody was telling me, oh, you know, you never you never make it in on your first try. You're probably going to have to be here for a couple of years before you'll get into the gospel choir. First time I got in. And it was, uh, you know, for me, it was literally a dream come true because we really were singing, you know, with other voices that I that just 
and I really soaked it up, you know, the gospel music and and singing in in the with such uh, a big bit because I have a big voice. I was in the alto section, you know, and sitting with other you know girls around me who you know went on to have you know really amazing careers like uh, Layla Hathaway and Kenya Hathaway. I were in the gospel choir at the time I was there, and uh, Paula Cole, and um, gosh, you know, it was and Susan Tedeschi. We were all in this in the choir right around the same time. And so, you know, those girls were highly inspirational to me. Their, their voices and their musicality, their um, ability to compose and, and do everything musically uh, really got made me excited about being a singer. But um, I knew pretty much that I wasn't interested in pop music and I didn't want to be like a, a singer-songwriter. And I knew that I needed to be in a band. I knew I needed to be in a, in a large vehicle um, and I had always, you know, really wanted to get with players, you know, that were better than me so that I could grow and that I could learn and, and uh, try to rise to their level. So that worked pretty good at Berkeley, you know, being in the gospel choir around those guys. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was when I really decided that, you know, I wanted to put together a, a, a big band and sing in a, in a group. Was there anything when you went to that school that was sort of uh, challenging because you were sort of rough around the edges or whatever? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was definitely challenges in the sense that, you know, I, when you're, I am very, you know, how, how should I put this? I'm, I'm actually pretty shy. Um, I really, I can sing in front of people. But I'm not like gonna, you know, like walk up to people that I don't know and strike up a conversation, you know. I I feel like some when I'm entertaining, I kind of go into this mode where it's like because I kind of was raised in the theater and I performed a lot since I was young because of my family and uh, those experiences. That is easy for me to get on stage and do stuff. But it, it's real different for me to like um, network and and make friends with people. So, uh, I kind of ended up working with people who approached me. So it was hard for me in the sense that I did not really know how to go about finding um, a network of people to work with. I just kind of ended up, you know, having to weed through a lot of different uh, bands and different relationships uh, before I found the guys in this band called Tongue and Groove. Or actually they found me, you know, it was kind of like, you know, one of those things where I just felt like, gee, maybe music really isn't the thing for me because, you know, I really wasn't feeling the pop music of the 80s. You know, I, I didn't really like the the songs that I heard that on the radio or MTV. And I, I just I didn't really know who I was and all of that. I was like, you know, I'm like this weird, like, you know, Janice character that, you know, I, I didn't really know how, how else to fit in. So people kind of pegged me as like that, you know, I would sit in with blues bands and stuff. And they pet kind of would be like, oh, you sound great singing Janice tunes. You know any Janice tunes? And I'm like, yeah, I know them all, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that was like the hardest thing for me was just to find my own voice. You know, I, I did have some people, you know, you know, in my own family that were kind of like, you know, why are you trying to sound black? And to me, it wasn't like I wasn't trying to sound like that. I was just trying to sound like what I, what I liked, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and do that to the best of my ability. Well, a lot of us want to do that, but we don't have the voice to back it up, you know? 
I know. I feel like I'm always trying to match this sound that I hear in my head. And, you know, sometimes I, when I listen back to recordings, I think, gosh, I'm really off the mark. But that's why I think it's really important to have, you know, people who encourage you and tell you, hey, you know, you, you, maybe you're, you're not completely satisfied with what you're doing, but we like it. And that's what's great about having a band around you, you know, because they kind of give you the confidence with, that I don't, I don't think I, you know, really had at the beginning. That was the hardest part for me was, um, you know, developing confidence. But, you know, that only comes with time. It's funny how many, you know, performers are sort of um, extroverts on stage and, and introverts off stage. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, you know, playing a character that comes out on the stage. Um, <clears throat> but I think that that also, <clears throat> excuse me, lends itself to some of the depth and substance that a lot of the best performers and singers have, you know? Um, when I first heard you, you know, you conjured up some of my favorite singers who are people like Shaka Khan and uh, Tina Marie and Aretha, of course. Um, and I figured Janice was in the mix somewhere there. So, um, yeah, I mean, those are, I, I hear, hear those influences. I mean, you didn't mention some of those, but but I feel like they're there. It took me a while to find my own voice and my own sound, you know? Um, I didn't want to be accused of imitating or trying to bite people's styles, you know? I uh, I definitely wanted the inspirations to, to, to shine through, but I was very, very, um, you know, when, when Deep and Out of Blackout became an original band, we went from being... Uh, tongue and groove, which you know really didn't didn't have like maybe I think we have maybe two originals. Then we went in tongue and groove to being deep and out of blackout. For me, that was the turning point of saying, you know, this is I really think that we need to focus primarily on writing songs, and that's when I started working with uh, Fuzz, the guitarist, and uh, Eric Kalb, uh, the drummer from Deep and Out of Blackout, because they had the same feeling about original music they didn't want to play you know uh in these cover bands and and uh, which were all over long island and connecticut um you know this is an extremely um competitive business when you want to talk about people who are like amazing musicians in the you know westchester county fairfield county long island area i mean you got really some incredible musicians here and the proximity to, to New York City made it so that, you know, everyone is re really competes a lot. And there's a lot of clubs in this scene and you could play every night of the week and you could make money, but you had to play covers. And to me, I started to like really freak out because I was like, you know, I didn't, I didn't get into this to be, you know, a human jukebox. I really, you know, was, was like pushing the whole writing the original music thing. So, you know, when I found the right people, we had the right chemistry um, and we sounded great doing the material that, you know, inspired me as, you know, as a singer Then I just knew I said, this is this is it, you know, and I just I felt like, you know, I had found the right people because I look around me at like the Etta James shows and and uh, all of the P-Funk shows we went to and the Bootsy shows that we went to. And I would see all the guys in my band were there with their girlfriends. I'd be like, I'm in the right band. <laughs> 
we went to see Chaka Khan together and Brothers Johnson opened up for them. And we saw Johnny Guitar Watson together. We saw his, one of his last performances before he died at Tramps in the city. And I got to tell you, you know, Johnny Guitar Watson, I really need to to um, give him some props, too, because I really, you know, he was a huge um influence on me musically as far as you know I, I really got dialed into this is what I want to sound like this is this is the music that really gets me excited it makes me want to dance and that's what we really wanted to do you know ultimately you know my my um, I married Eric Kalb the drummer from Deep and Out of Blackout back in 2000 and uh you know he always just wanted to make people dance and you know I think that's why we we you know kind of birthed this great band together and uh, it was such a, a fun experience for everybody who would come to the shows would dance the entire time. And for us, that's what it was about. Now, was your brother also in the band or you had a brother in the band or? Yeah, my brother uh, played percussion. He actually was joined the band when he was 16. And, uh, you know, of course, he, we told him, you got to finish high school. And then when, by the time uh, we got on the road and went out to the West Coast for the first time, was actually uh, the day after he graduated from high school. So it worked out perfectly um, that we had uh, uh, taken him kind of on a tour, right? Right. As he, uh, you know, we're finished to uh, finished up with high school and it was great. I mean, he, he had this awesome opportunity kind of right out of the gate, you know, something that, you know, we all had to work for, you know, 10 or so years kind of slugging it out on the cover scene and the bar band scene before we were able to do that. And that was largely in part to Warren Haynes and Government Mule. They really gave us the opportunity to go on the road with them and, uh, and open up for them and play our music all over the country in places that we could never get into on our own. And that was a, an 11 show tour. We played 11 dates with them. I think, you know, it took us about three weeks to do all those shows because we had to like follow them all over. But we, we started at the Fillmore in, in San Fran. And then we went down to the House of Blues. We went in, in L.A. But then we went down to um, Vegas and we played with them um, all across uh, Albuquerque. And, and uh, we played in Tucson with them. We played in uh, uh, Dallas. And, and then we ended up last date of the show uh, of this tour, rather, was in New Orleans. And it was around that time that, you know, Bernie was also playing keyboards with government mule. So that's around the time that then, then we started opening up for um, Bernie and like, and you know, we, we, you know, all kind of became friends through that whole government mule tour experience. So well, yeah. It really kind of set the stage and I was, I was there for some of that. So yes. very cool. Um, so if I was to hear a uh, tongue and groove play a track um, and then Deep Banana Blackout play. Mm -hmm. What would you say would be the main differences between those two sounds? Well, the, the band's leader, it, um, the male singer named uh, Andrew Gromiller. And I mean, this guy sang everything from, you know, Sam Cooke to Otis Redding. I mean, that he just had a voice like that. And uh, he was he was such an incredible singer. And I used to go and see Tongue and Groove play um, when I was still kind of going through my my phase of like not really knowing about what I was doing with music. And I was going back to, to college for philosophy at this point. I thought, Oh, maybe I'll teach philosophy in college or something, you know? And cause I like to read, you know? 
and uh, I stumbled upon these guys. I think I went, I bought a guitar at the local music store and the guy who sold me the guitar said, hey, my band's playing at, uh, uh, you know, this master's sports cafe or something. And Hey, you, you know, I'm like, oh, really? What, what kind of songs do you do? And he's, he's telling me and I'm like, oh, you know any Aretha? <laughs> so I went and I sat in with them that night and, you know, sang a couple of Aretha tunes and, and tell me something good or something. And uh, they were like, oh, wow, this is great. You know, you should join the band. And I was just amazed by that because they already had this fantastic lead singer, this guy. But, you know, they wanted to have the male female vocals. And that's when it really got to be the, the, the sound that I wanted to be a part of, which is like Funkadelic. You know, we have like, you know, many voices, male and female. Mm -hmm. that that's when it really started it started dawn on me that i could actually do something like that that had that like the gospel vocals kind of feel with o over the like heavy metal guitars and f funky rhythms i mean the time you guys came along too i mean it was like just uh, kind of the post grunge era and uh you know uh there hadn't been much funk at all i mean george clinton was obviously still keeping it alive and, and Prince was out there, but I mean, it was slim pickings for that kind of music at that time. So, I mean, you guys were really standing out and doing something different and going against the grain. Um, but you also incorporated jam band elements and different kinds of flavors right. that helped helped you get into a lot of different, different niches. Yeah, I mean, we had so many great soloists in the band and, and you know, because we, we were all like, just crazy about the um, that uh, Denver. We had this Denver '76. I think it was the Earth Tour um, with Dennis Chambers on drums. Uh, oh my God! That we used to play those arrangements of those live shows because we were obsessed with it. I mean, we were just like you know, we drive all over the country. Sometimes it's eight nine hours on the road every day. And we would just be listening to all of, all of those old vintage, you know, we got these bootleg recordings and, and um, we, were, we were just uh, always trying because we played a different show every night. We never played the same show twice as far as like we and we came up with all these different segues and stuff that would go in and out of our music and the Sly and the P-Funk and the James Brown. And it just, you know, it it was a really, really phenomenal thing to to be able to reference those those grooves and those different arrangements that they played you know in the live shows that's what I think you know we were able to really stretch out the solo sections and you know make them you know because really build you know because you'd start bringing the dynamics down and they could build it up to that fever pitch you know that by the end by the end everybody comes in with that last chorus or that last you know uh, go round it's just like everybody's just you know <laughs> panting and sweating and like what oh yeah oh good people really riled up and that's that from to me was the goal of every night to just get people to, to be like oh, i never danced like that before in my life or you know wow, yeah. crazy people would be like jumping at the end and yeah. that's the glory right there yeah <laughs> um John, I want to talk a little bit more about um, this, this, the vocalizing part of it. So I think, you know, it's not only being soulful, um, but there's also certain, you know, 
sexiness to it and sassiness and how you deliver it. And, um, you know, I hear that coming through you. And so, you know, when you're actually doing that and performing, like what's kind of going on inside you? Well, again, I'd probably have to cite, you know, a couple of huge influences uh, like Lynn Collins. Um, they called her the female preacher. And, uh, you know, she really, she laid it down. She did, she had a, a way about her that was, you know, no nonsense. You know, she was breaking it down for the men, uh, you know, telling them what's what. <laughs> and, Better and, think. You know, I really did adopt a lot of her personality and, you know, really one of the greatest gifts of, of my life was um, getting to become friendly with uh, Fred Wesley. He um, really, really uh, loved the band because we had invited him to do what we called boot camp. We had a, a series at the Wetlands nightclub in New York City um, in 99, I think it was. It was 90, 90, yeah, it was 99. And we invited him and Clyde Stubblefield um, to come and play with us as well as... Um, Michael Ray uh, and um, Marshall Allen from Sun Ra. And so we had like this incredible, you know, sort of uh, group of people that we were able to sort of introduce to the jam band scene that were really the innovators of that sound, you know? And we, and th to have Fred Wesley on stage wearing a deep and out of blackout t-shirt standing next to me doing a whole show of like, you know, of what we, what we did, which was, you know, James Brown, P-Funk, Sly and the Family Stone, and our music. And he, you know, played on our, on our songs as well as all these other songs. And he, like, we became friends with him, you know, and, and Clyde. They, they were just, they were so um, authentically happy that we were keeping the funk alive and that we were like the next generation. And they were you know, tremendously um, helpful to us throughout the years. Um, so Fred invited me to a, a show that he did at Joe's Pub later that year where uh, Lynn Collins was performing with him. So I actually got to meet and thank Lynn Collins for, you know, really kind of vocally and uh, as an entertainer and stylistically, like really I helped me get the sound that I have today because we did a lot of uh, songs by her, as well as Vicki Anderson. So I would cite the, um, the James Brown uh, female singers as, you know, probably along with Chaka Khan for giving me the kind of persona that I kind of, you know, because I'm not me on, my, on that stage. It's not me, you know, that's, I'm entertaining. And, and I put that on. For, for people and uh, and Tina Turner as well. I got to definitely say Etta James, who I've seen, you know, probably over a hundred times in concert. Wow. And uh, I have to a lot of the reason why I was able to do, to see as many shows as I was, was after I uh, graduated from Berkeley, I um, moved to New York City and I worked as a receptionist at uh, Sounds of Brazil, SOBs. And because I worked for Larry Gold, who was one of the biggest promoters in New York City, probably still is, um, I could go to any show I wanted pretty much on the guest list. So I did. And I probably, you know, that during that time that I worked at SOBs for two years, um, I saw everyone, that, you know, from the jazz world, R&B, um, my heroes, um, and uh, Etta James is certainly 
a big one. And she is real sassy. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, I, I adopted the that persona and that and that kind of style because I really and Aretha too, she had it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't honestly say that that's like naturally me. I'm not really like the <laughs> if I was getting up there and being me and I was kind of boring. <laughs> well when you met when you met Lynn, did it seem like that was really her? Was it her thing too? Nope, she was like a, a sweet old grandma from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> but when she got up on stage, she was the female preacher, you know. I mean, it, it's um, she got know, possessed. <laughs> we are the sum of the all of the parts of the band, you know. It's the it's really the chemistry of of all of the people on stage, and uh, you know that's why being in a big band uh, for me was always where it's at. I've always really wanted to do that. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was uh, really exciting to, to meet Lynn. And they were about to go on like a European tour. So I think it was one of the last times she toured mm. too, with, as well. So that was really, you know, a great opportunity to, to you know, actually, you know, get to shake her hand and, and thank her for being who she was and her tremendous influence on me, you know. That is great. Yeah. Um, and Fred Wesley, I I mean, he's just one of my very favorites. And I was fortunate enough to have him on a Truth and Rhythm episode. Uh, mm -hmm. So very grateful for that. Uh, but him and Maceo, and they're my favorites. Um, yeah. Clyde, unfortunately, just passed away um, not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, the hard part, you know, when, and when, as I do this show, I'm trying to get to everyone while they're still with us, you know? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you the, a great story about Clyde. You know, I um, brought him to the airport after the show. And uh, we were singing Isley Brothers songs together, waiting. And, you know, because we, we, you know, it, he was several hours early for his flight. So, you know, we just kind of hung out in my car and, and listened to, I had all these different like mixtapes back then. I was still listening to cassettes in my car. And, uh, you know, we were singing all these Isley Brothers songs together and he had a good singing voice. And mm -hmm. he was just, I mean, I couldn't believe the energy on that man. He was just incredible energy. And he was so funny too, because we would be like, all right, we're going to play Can't Stand in 76. And he's like, how does that one go? <laughs> he would just be like, we'd all be sitting there like, um, that's the one that goes, he's like, I'm just <laughs> I wanted to um, put this up for the viewers. This was uh, Rowdy Duty. Probably my favorite um, one. Wonderful. You know, um, so many great tracks on here that I just love. Bump and Sway. Um, um, it's actually hard to read all the tracks yeah. on here, but there's, I wanted to, uh, let me get a better listing of the tracks here. Well, I wanted to do a live album because I just love the energy that we got on stage. You know, we had we had made one studio record, and I remember being extremely uh, frustrated that we just couldn't seem to get the sound like we had live, you know? So that's why when we made Rowdy Duty, I really wanted it to be a live album. And it was about 20 years ago that we put that record out. 
Yeah, it's a two CD set. And besides Bump and Sway, I love uh, Breakfast at Volos. Um, we're talking about, you know, kind of that swinging sexy vibe that definitely has it. Um, and JB, um, Get Y'all in the Mood, big right. JB influence on that one. 20, almost 22 minutes of jamming. Um, take the time, really hard rocking kind of track. Uh, pure gr uh, gravy to me has sort of a P funk kind of groove. Yep. And a uh, remake of the Headhunters track uh, made me funky. Yes. Yes, I really I enjoyed the Bill Summers interview. I saw you, that you did. Um, you know, we also, something that we did as a band for about 10 years um, was go to the New Orleans Jazz Festival. So, yeah, so we were able to go and see Pike Clark and, and Bill Summers and a lot of headhunters, you know, playing in different projects at the New Orleans Jazz Festival. And, and uh, you know, we certainly uh, have always loved playing that song in our, you know, when we were back in, some of us were in Tongue and Groove together. And uh, we that was a favorite, like a, definitely a favorite of, of all the uh, not only the band members, but the people in the audience too. So we got that requested a lot. Yeah, this even there's a funkadelic tie in there too because Blackbird McKnight was yes. part of the Headhunters. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, that, and when we went to write our original music, it was really you know based off of uh, like the Headhunters um, that sound that they had. You know, we had the uh, the horns, and we had you know tremendous uh, improv abilities. So, and, and we love those gospel vocals, you know, like the R&B soul vocals uh, over the, over the, the jazz metal. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. But, um, you know, or when we started actually doing some shows with John Schofield mm -hmm. as well, and, you know, around that, right around the, that rowdy duty time, um, because we were really you know, we gained a lot of fans, you know, going out on the road with Government Mule and playing all these big festivals and big theaters around the country. So, you know, we um, we ended up doing stuff with uh, with John Schofield as well, who, you know, you think of as kind of like a jazz fusion rock kind, you know. And so we we definitely, you know, had a lot of things going on um, with us. But I, as a singer, you know, I felt like, I really always wanted to, you know, stay with the the construction of the harmonic um, vocals, you know, that we have vocal harmonies, male and female, and singing together as much as possible, like Sly and the Family Stone mm -hmm. and P-Funk. I think um, Schofield did a cover of one of your songs, didn't he, on one of his records? Well, he had um, our my brother uh, play and uh, my um, uh, ex-husband... Uh, Eric Kelb play on his bump record. He they recorded bump with him. Yeah, it's a pretty so, funky record. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah, he he kind of like had a little bit of an homage <laughs> to us uh on on that record. I think one of those songs, um Kelpers, is it? I can't remember. I think it's Kelpers. Yeah, I got it around here somewhere. It has a little nod to, to Deepen Out of Blackout. Yeah, for sure. And then later on, Skull Mule was a combination of yeah. him and, and Government Mule. So it's kind of all like, you know. Yeah, the, the improv, you know, soul, jazz, funk. Uh, you know, we're, 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 we're so lucky, really, honestly. To, we, we got to play with the, these legendary people that were our heroes. And they really, you know, finally... It, uh, uh, 
ultimately I left Deep and Out of Blackout because I got an opportunity to work with Bernie Worrell. And I was, you know, I, I felt like that was just an opportunity that, uh, well, I never expected anything like that to ever be <laughs> possible for me. Um, it took me completely by surprise at a government mule show, actually, um, when I was backstage talking with uh, Bernie and Judy. And they, I'll tell you, they just brought me into their family. Um, they just uh, were wonderful. I went on the road with them for two years and had the time of my life and, uh, you know, got to sing a lot of like really rare funkadelic that like George and the All-Stars weren't playing um, with these tunes that Bernie was selecting from a very specific era of, of P-Funk that uh, he really, you know, wanted to do in his show. So that for me was just like amazing. And uh, let me just read some of these, these tracks, uh, Jen, yeah. uh, because, you know, you're on this one. And, um, you know, for me, it's you're if you're a diehard longtime P-Funk fan, hearing some of these tracks pulled out and done is just a dream. You know, um, you guys did um, Super Stupid, um, You and Your Folks, Me and My Folks, yeah. Biological Speculation. My favorite. Uh, standing on the verge, uh, and then other stuff that's played every now and then, but very cool. Red Hot Mama from Downstroke, Gaming on You. Oh yeah, really cool stuff. <laughs> Smokey, I don't know if Smokey's on there, but we used to do Smokey. Mm -hmm. We used to do um, uh, Trash a Go Go, mm -hmm. and uh, you know it's funny because I, I, I every once in a while you know, we'll do something with, with Clip and, and Danny Bedrosian and we'll go back and we'll hit that, like that Bernie rep, you know, and just for fun. And, and I just remember those days. It's just, you know, it was the best, some of the best of my life. This band was good too. I mean, you had uh, Greg Fitz on keyboards, John Hickey on the uh, guitar. Yeah. Um, yeah. We so had, uh, Donna, uh, Donna back on bass. And uh, she just like lady bass was, was you know that's what Be that what um, Bernie called her, and uh, she just had you know just this incredible sound, uh, Donna. She just and, and then singing with Greg Fitz. I mean his voice and his keyboard playing. You know he was in Bootsy's Rubber Band and Quasar, and he's a guy that you should interview. He is got some great stories. I would just be on you know in the van just like asking him questions and listening to stories and tell me about this and you know and oh i remember that show oh i saw you with booty oh my god that, that was you you know <laughs> you know it was it was incredible and one time i remember him looking at me and going you're really you're just like a fan all right you're a fan and i'm like yeah it's amazing to me that i ended up in this world you know doing what i'm doing it's it's kind of like a cinderella story you know a little bit um incredible. when you're when you're performing with this group, I mean, did you get much direction from Bernie or anyone else, or did they just say, we're doing this, do your thing? Yeah, you know, uh, they the other singers for the Woo Warriors before me were just, had done such an incredible job, and I was really working off of those tapes and the arrangements um, that they had sung on, and you know, some of the brides of Funkenstein, and you know, we're talking about people who I had been idolizing and, and listening to on vinyl for years. So for me, it was an opportunity to just 
do that to the best of my ability, you know? So it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Bernie really just, uh, he loved to rehearse and we always rehearsed, um, you know, right before a tour, we'd have like a three or four hour rehearsal and, uh, it was great. I mean, every night was, was, uh, was, there was always some unexpected thing that he would do because um, he loved to, uh, you know, have like a little solo section maybe in between songs as, as a segue from one to another. And then we, but we wouldn't know what, like, for example, if we were going to come in with Game and Anya, we'd all just be like waiting for that first note and waiting for him to, and he would mess with us, you know, he would just be like, and all of a sudden start playing Benny and the Jets or something. You know, like he just had so much fun on stage, but it was like, don't, you know, don't sleep. Don't think you don't kick back and think you got timing because when you least expect it, it's going to be the downbeat's going to be there. You better be ready. You know, absolutely. <laughs> it was a blast. What, what, was there any single show that uh, stands out in particular from that experience? Oh, um, yeah, there was a show that we played, I think, at Lillian's in Austin, Texas, that we played for three hours straight. No stops. I mean, it was impressive. I mean, I, I was just, the, the band was just so impressive to me. They were, you know, I play a little bit of hand percussion, but I mean, these guys were literally played a, a three hour set with no break, you know? And the drummer for, for, for Bernie at the time is Gary Sullivan. Um, I just fell madly in love with him, and we ended up having two kids together. <laughs> you and drummers. Yeah, I, you know. <laughs> I, I love to play hand percussion, too. I mean, I guess I'm, you know, deep down in a, a frustrated drummer in, <laughs> inside. But, um, yeah, drums to me are the most important part of the band. So, but uh, I couldn't fun, believe yeah. it that night. He literally played for over three hours without a break, and, you know. He was, did they just stretch out the songs or did they play more songs? I think we played every, yeah, the stretching out was, was pretty massive. There was just a lot of improv. There was a lot of, you know, just taking it out. And something that I would, that I loved to do was like, you know, if you heard something that sounded like, um, like a chord progression for like a Beatles song and you just touch it for a second, you know, play like come together for a second and, and then go back into what we were playing before. And I love that. That to me is really exciting. And I know the audience gets pumped by that too, because they're like, oh, did you hear they went there? And, you know, that's kind of like a, a Grateful Dead thing too, you know, like the Grateful Dead always, you know, you know, opened up those sections and you, and then they would lose the one sometimes and you wouldn't, you know, and then all of a sudden they come back in on the one and it was just the excitement, you know, just builds when you do that. Um, and that night at Lillian's was like that. It was like, you really didn't know what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden you turn around and it's like three hours later and we haven't taken a break. It was, it was, and it was packed. It, it wasn't, a, it was not a very big club. It had high ceilings, but it was packed, you know? And I just remember being in there and, and being like, almost like no time went by and I looked at, at what time it was and thought, we, did we hit like a time warp or something? Because we were all just so engaged in it. You know, yeah, and Bernie would sometimes throw in even TV themes and stuff like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was just, he was just a, such an incredible band leader, you know. And uh, 
the and subsequently after that, you know, when he played with the Bernie Worrell Orchestra, um, you know, I got to sit in with with that group a few times and got to open up for that group a few times with my with my most recent project before Bernie passed. So, you know, that became like a, a, a long standing relationship and a, a great friendship. And he was just a big mentor to me and, you know, always will be always. Uh, I don't think a day goes by when I don't listen to Woo together. <laughs> Getting to sing that one, that was a big one. Getting to sing Woo together and Baby, I owe you something good. You know, he gave me the opportunities to, to sing stuff that, you know, frankly, was just like, I mean, I never even dreamed of some of the, the opportunities and experiences I got thanks to Bernie, you know. Like, I got to play one time with uh, Leo Nocentelli and uh, Felicia Collins from the Late Night Show with Bernie. Um, you know, because Bernie just invited me to this jam that he was going on at BB King's and Bernie just invited me. He's like, yeah, come along. Yeah, we'll get you up and sing on a few. And it was like Stanley Jordan was there, like all these big stars. And like, and Bernie's like, yeah, come on, why don't you sing one with us? And I would just be like, what? You know, it was really a thrill. Some people, I mean, I remember, but for a very short period, Bernie was part of the late night band uh, where yeah. he met Felicia. Right, right. Um, that didn't last. It seemed like that was going to be weird, you know, because he's definitely not um, or was a square peg in a round hole for that kind of situation. <laughs> I feel like, you know, he really could do anything because, you know, his training and, and, you know, what his ear, you know, he and he just was so outside the box with everything, you know, he could really do it all. <laughs> 